Welcome back to another episode of The Girls Room. I'm your host, Marissa, here for another glamorous episode. Welcome back to another episode of The Girls Room. This month, we are discussing the importance of mental health and self-care for a continuation of last year's April Showers of Self-Love. Today, we're joined by special guest Sadie, host of teen mental health podcast called She Persisted, to talk about mental health advice for high school students. Welcome, Sadie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So for those who don't know you and know your podcast, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. So my name is Sadie. I'm 18 years old and I live in the Bay Area, um, but I'm an incoming freshman at the University of Pennsylvania where I'll be studying psychology. Um, And as I'm sure we'll get into, I went through a whole mental health journey at the end of middle school and the beginning of high school. And I ended up doing a year and a half of intensive treatment. And at the end of that, I decided I want to start a podcast to share what I've learned, share the amazing skills and resources and those insights, and also be that reminder that even when you're a teen, even when you're really young, you can still change your mental health and make sustainable, lasting changes that help you live your life worth living. So I've been doing that for about two years now. And like you said, it's called She Persisted. Um, And I talk all about all things teen mental health. And so that's really what I'm passionate about. And that's what I want to do with studying psychology and then hopefully one day becoming a clinical psychologist and working with kids. Wow, that is so, so, so amazing. You have gone through so much, but just the fact that you are doing all this now and now you're educating other people and your podcast is amazing. Like I'm listening as post-college, as a 23-year-old listening to your episode about high school mental health advice. And I'm like, wow, like this is helpful even to me for some of these things. (laughs) And I just think it's so amazing what you're doing because like in high school and middle school, no one was talking about mental health, at least like when I was a high schooler and middle schooler. So I think it's so important to break the stigma and to start talking about it. And you're doing an amazing job with it. So thank you. can you go a little bit more into your backstory and explain your middle school and high school days? Yeah, of course. So I now look back and I can kind of notice my like belief systems that were in place that kind of led to me being depressed. But when I was in eighth grade, I suddenly was like, wow, I don't want to sleep. When I do sleep, I am having a terrible time at sleeping. I avoided sleep at all costs. My relationships were really struggling. Um, I was having a lot of trouble maintaining basic things like, again, sleep, eating, all of these basic things that tend to deteriorate when one is struggling with depression and then anxiety. So looking back, I know that I had these belief systems that I didn't deserve love. So all of these interactions, I wasn't really allowing myself to feel validated or connected or loved. Um, even with myself. And so that was really um, a negative headspace to be in and totally contributed to those feelings. Um, I had a really strong belief system that I was never going to be good enough for my parents. So that left me at home being like, okay, I'm not going to be good enough. None of this is okay and I can't connect. And so all of these things that left me feeling really isolated and then depressed. Um, But at the time, these belief systems had just been slowly, slowly forming over years and years. And so it wasn't like one day I woke woke up and was like, okay, I'm depressed. It just kind of slowly but surely happened. Um, So I ended up in this headspace that was super negative um, and I was really struggling and I ended up spending, I think it was about seven days in the hospital when I was 13 just for being so withdrawn and physically sluggish and isolated. Um, And at that point I was in eighth grade, it was halfway through eighth grade and I'd never encountered anyone around me that had struggled with depression. 
So while I knew that something wasn't necessarily normal with what I was experiencing, I thought it was completely specific to me, and I had no idea that it would possibly be something that could be diagnosed or have a treatment for. I just thought it was like a failure on my part that I was struggling so much when I hadn't gone through any outstanding traumas or losses or big life changes. I was just really, really sad. And so... And continued to try all these different outpatient treatments, whether that was time in the hospital, pursuing a therapist, um, doing some outpatient DBT, and nothing really stuck. Again, I can look back now and be like, okay, I was going through the motions of therapy. I was attending these appointments, but I didn't believe it was going to work. I believed I was meant to live a life where I was depressed and anxious and struggling. I didn't think I deserved to get better. I thought I, I was failing as a person because I wasn't able to be happy despite the fact that there was no reason for me to be unhappy. So I was just really not, I wasn't trusting that the process would work. And so it was kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy that of course it didn't work. And so um, at the end of my fall semester of freshman year, I ended up going to a program in Boston called Three East. And there were a couple of pivotal moments that kind of happened during my time there. But remember when I first got there, I was 14. Um, so at that point, I was really, really struggling with both um, suicidal ideation and then again, depression. And everything was falling apart as a result, whether that was my family relationships, my ability to take care of myself with normal habits like school and sleep and eating. Um, and then I just had such a negative view of myself and the world and just felt so alone and isolated um, and thought it was my fault. And so I got there, my parents and I packed up all my bags. I went to Boston and we got to this appointment and the the doctor looked at me. I was in a room with like seven different doctors that worked at this place. And I was this little 14 year old who was just so sad. And I was told I had to come to this program and I was like, I don't wanna be here. And so they asked me and they were like, do you want to be here? Like, do you want to be at this program and work on yourself? And I was like, no, I'm told I have to be here. I understand that this is the only option, but I don't want to be here. And what they told me was that this was a voluntary program and that unless I could see the wisdom in this treatment, which was dialectical behavioral therapy, which has dozens of really amazing um, clinical studies that it works for teens struggling with suicidality and depression and dysfunctional relationships um, and even things like eating disorders. And then in adults, it was originally um, developed for people struggling with BPD. So again, these kind of similar things that you can see in teens, whether that's impulsivity or um, relationships that are struggling or depression, all of these kinds of things um, that present across a large audience, a large audience, a large demographic. And so it's been adapted for so many different treatments. But they told me, they were like, unless you can see the wisdom that this is going to work and trust the evidence and trust us as individuals who've dedicated our lives to working with teens just like you and have had success doing that, and unless you have the wisdom to, to want that for yourself, you can't be here because it's not going to work. If you, if you don't believe that it's going to work, if you don't trust us enough to help you, nothing's going to be long lasting. And it's just going to be the same as the other three times you've done DBT treatment so far. And they also said, you know, there are other programs you can go to, your parents can drop you off and you don't have a say in the matter. And so that kind of scared me. I was like, okay, I want to be here. Like, I like this control. Um, but I was like, I'll take the night to think about it. I went back, I watched The Bachelor, I ordered some ice cream, I had a great time. But the next day I went and that was that first time in my mental health treatment that I not only trusted others that they could help me, and I believed that they could help me um, and that they were 
it sounds terrible to say that they were competent enough, but I thought I was so messed up and so um, irregular as a, as a patient that it just wasn't going to be possible. Um, and again, like it wasn't like I was presenting with any like crazy, crazy stuff. I was just really sad. I was really depressed. And yet I thought that that was so um, abnormal given that I didn't have a reason to be depressed in my mind. Um, and then the other thing was that for the first time in my treatment journey, I wanted myself to get better. I had enough compassion to want to be happy and to want to live a life that I loved, even if I didn't see the path there. I couldn't remember at that point in my life a time when I look, woke up and looked forward to the day or had things two, three weeks that I was like, oh, I can't wait for that. Everything was just kind of consumed by this depression. Was, there was no roadmap that I was trying to get back to or a point B where I was like, okay, these are the steps I'm going to take to get there. I was really stumbling blindly, but I trusted these people and I had enough compassion that I wanted that for myself, even if I didn't know how to get there. So those 14 weeks were truly pivotal and that I came there again, struggling with suicidality and dysfunctional relationships and depression and anxiety. I did some OCD work there. But 14 weeks later, I left no longer struggling with suicidal ideation. I wasn't waking up every day struggling with depression. I was able to understand my anxiety enough to cope with it and manage it and understand that these thoughts that would go through my head weren't facts and they weren't real threats, and yet my body was responding like they were. And so just an extremely pivotal, um, pivotal moment for me and my mindset shifted and I learned the most amazing skills of how to be interpersonally effective and stay present and live in the moment um, and tolerate the distress that I was going through um, and regulate my emotions, which are all the different modules of DBT. So just amazing really did save my life. And then the next year I spent in treatment was kind of just maintaining that progress. In three months, I'd gone from a super sad, depressed kid who was struggling with suicidal ideation to one who for the first time in years could see a future. And so if I were to just go home and go right back, I I probably would have relapsed to depression and gone back to the same headspace. So instead, I went to a therapeutic boarding school and spent a year there, and I was able to build the most amazing relationships with the other girls in treatment there and really just continue to build off of that foundation with my, my parents, with our family, um, and then continue to rewire those belief systems and, and learn to truly believe that I deserve love and that I'm good enough for my parents and I am worthy and deserving of a life that I want to live and that I love. And that is something that as a human and that we all are, are worthy of and deserving of no matter what we've gone through, or what we're feeling. And so that was kind of my mental health journey and treatment. Um, and then at the end of that, which I'm sure we'll dive into um, after having that huge mindset shift and all of those, those changes um, and how I was feeling, I really wanted to share that with other people because I was such a strong believer that it wouldn't work. I knew that there were adults telling me and they're like, oh, you'll, life is great. It'll get better. I promise this isn't going to be the same forever. And I was like, you're wrong. Like, I know other people can be happy, but I can't. And so to, to have that huge shift and know that from a teen, that could be such a powerful, powerful perspective. I wanted to share that. And I completely owe it to my dad. He was like, you should start a podcast, share this. This is so cool. And first I was like, no, I'm not like, this is so embarrassing. Dad, please stop. Leave me alone. I'm not doing this. And then to being like, okay, maybe he's right. And this is something that could be really cool to share. And I, I knew how lucky I was that my parents cared enough to get me that treatment when I was really struggling. I knew how, how difficult it is to uproot your life for a year and a half to get, to get treatment for your mental health. I, I was on a medical leave for the entire second semester of my freshman year. Like that's not a sacrifice that many people 
um, are willing to make or can make for their mental health. So I wanted to bring as much of the wisdom that I learned during that year and a half to people without having to disrupt their lives so that they could implement it before it got as bad as it did for me because all of these skills that I learned they can be implemented even if you're not severely struggling with depression and anxiety. It's things like making sure your sleep is on track so you're more productive and alert and awake. It's things like advocating for yourself when you want something from a teacher or a boss or a parent. Um, it's validating so that you can have healthy, strong relationships where people feel seen and heard and learning how to distract yourself when things get tough and then re-enter the situation so you're not just avoiding your emotions. All of these things that we can all all use um, in our daily lives to just live happier, more fulfilled lives that are worth living. Wow. <laughs> you have such a story. The fact that you're 18 and you have lived, like, I feel like 27 lives by now. Sometimes it, it feels crazy. like that. <laughs> like, I can't even believe that. And to be doing all this starting at 13, like, that's yeah. such a really challenging, difficult time already as it is. Like, social life and like dealing with your body and all these sorts of changes and things going on mm. around you to have to be dealing with all of this stuff like I can't even imagine in the fact that you're coming out so strong and now you're doing all these amazing things with it like it's honestly like outstanding like it's an honor to be having this conversation with you right now <laughs> like truly you're so sweet and I'm still like I people want to hear about my mental health like I still don't believe that people actually want to have this conversation with me so it's I really really appreciate you having me on as a guest oh of course that has to take so much strength and like that's such like a scary challenging thing to do and especially that you're going across the country like from your family at such a young age and like being told like to just believe in like these people who you don't even know in front of you what was it like being away from like your family throughout that whole experience totally yeah so mixed feelings my initial impressions of this program i googled it and so if you've ever seen the movie girl interrupted the hospital in that movie is based off the hospital i went to so it's been around since like 18, 1900s, and it used to be literally an asylum when mental health treatments first started to be developed. It's been around forever, and so there's been this huge shift as we as a society change the way we approach mental health. They, of course, have kept up with that and are now using so much compassion and care to treat people as <laughs> instead of asylums like we were at 200 years ago. So I Googled that, and I was like, Oh my God, you, like this, I was so scared. I was like, I can't go here. This is going to be a disaster. Um, so that at first I was terrified. Um, and then when I got there, when I was in that first meeting with those clinicians and they, one of the first questions they asked me was like, okay, we can kind of do this intake meeting with your parents here in the room, or you can just do it by yourself. I immediately kicked them out. I was, I felt that they were the root of my problems. I felt they were the reason that I was depressed. My mindset was, well, you raised me and now I'm depressed. I haven't lived alone. I haven't had the opportunity to be independent. So my mental health must be a result of you. Um, and now I know that no matter what environment you're in, um, it doesn't necessarily have to correlate to your mental health state. My therapist was telling me, it was a couple months ago, and she was talking about these people that were in these concentration camps during some, some war. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they were practicing the principles of mindfulness um, and, and um, these skills that I also implemented when I was in treatment. And they were able to come out of it. Of course, they went through trauma, but their mental health wasn't necessarily impacted. And so, of course, that's so not typical. Like, not, we're not Buddhists. Like, most people would go into that situation and not have the same experience. 
And regardless of your surroundings, you have a lot of control over how you respond to things, how you react to things, how you, um, how your inner dialogue looks and, um, and, and how it impacts your mental health. So kind of going back to, to my experience, um, blamed everything on them. And so there's part of me that was kind of glad to have this time away from them um, and to not have to have these interactions that for me were so taxing and tolling because I was going into these interactions with people that I thought I was never going to be good enough for and reinforcing these beliefs that I wasn't deserving of love. And so regardless of who that other person is, of course, it was painful for me. Um, but it was really lucky at that treatment program because my parents actually flew out to learn the same skills as me every single week. And they attended a group with the other parents of the kids there. And so they would learn the DBT skills and they'd be like, okay, this is the distract skill. This is how I'm going to effectively validate my kid. And so every single week, my mom or my dad would fly from California to Boston and we would go and hang out around the city and slowly but surely start to build a relationship. And so um, it was definitely difficult to be away from from my family and everything that I've known. I feel like the year after those um, that I spent in Montana was harder because it was so much longer. Whereas when I was at the, the place in Boston, McLean Hospital, I was seeing them every week. I was talking to them almost every day on the phone and they were very, very involved in my treatment because um, depression and anxiety, addiction, whatever it is, all these mental health um, challenges don't happen in a vacuum. A lot of it is our environment and things contribute to that. And so that was why it was so important that all of us as a family kind of make some changes um, and learn the skills to help us succeed and be and be effective. Um, but we we really were able to do a complete 180 with our relationship. They learned how to validate. They started to understand what I was going through. Um, I like to tell this story about my dad where when I was at home and I would stay in bed, I was actually sleeping. I slept on my parents' floor for six months because I was struggling so much with like my, my mental health and my sleep and my physical safety that they were like, well, you can't sleep in your room. Like you're going to be here next to us. Um, and I'd get, they would get up in the morning to be ready to go to work, do their day. So I just lay in bed. Wouldn't move at all. <laughs> like This is where I'm going to be today. Not getting up. My dad, he would play um, symphony music as loud as he could on the speaker. And he was like, if I play it loud enough, she'll get out of bed. Like, this is the solution. Of course, I didn't get out of bed. Like, why would that work for depression when someone's clinically struggling? But he was like, this is the solution. Um, and so when we got to McLean, he was really open in that. He was like, I didn't even know that adolescents could struggle with depression or anxiety or actually have these, these challenges that they're facing. And so he was able to understand that. And even though he, he couldn't empathize, he could make space for that suffering and say, I see you. I see how much you're struggling and how miserable every day is for you. And I just want you to know that, that I see that and that I, I'm here for you. And even though I don't understand, I, I can appreciate it. Um, and so we, we did a lot of different things to kind of build our relationship um, to a point where then I ended up missing them a lot when I was in Montana. We did this other thing and that whenever we would go out and we would have dinner or we'd walk around, something I really, really struggled with was communicating to them my emotions, whether I was happy or I was feeling grateful or I was really struggling. I just could not tell them that I was wasn't okay. And that led, went to the belief system that I'll never be good enough for them. And so if I were to show them this weakness, well, we've been further from being good enough for them. So we would be sitting in a restaurant and my challenge would be to blurt out what my emotions were, even if it made no sense in the conversation, we could be talking about the weather and I'd be like, anxiety, 
I'm feeling anxiety just to kind of communicate to them what was going on. And then from there, of course, I was able to formulate it more effectively and be like, hey, this is what's going on in my life right now so that we could create that strong foundation of communication between us where I could be safe and effective at home um, post-treatment. But it was to recap and kind of answer your question more succinctly. At first, it didn't really impact me a lot because I had so much anger and resentment. And then at the end, it was it was really, really difficult because I had grown to to really, really love, love these people again and had this really strong relationship. Um, and so to be without that was really, really difficult. The 180 that that took is like absolutely amazing to hear. And another thing that I also really love about your podcast that it's aimed towards teenagers, but also parents can listen to it and parents can learn a lot from it. And I think that that's something that's really important too, because sometimes they just don't really get it, you know, and they need to hear it from a teenager's perspective, someone who could be their child's perspective. And I think that that's really important that you really emphasize that. I saw on your, in your Instagram bio, you have like a link tree and you have different playlists of your podcast Mm -hmm. episodes, like separated for teenagers and for parents and for everybody. And I think that that's really amazing because more people need to be talking about this hearing about it and you're starting the conversation I feel for a lot of people and also educating a lot of people on these things and on the topic of education I kind of want to talk about a little bit more about DBT because that's something that keeps getting brought up can you explain that a little bit yeah of course so DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy And it was initially developed in like the 1990s for um, adults who are struggling with um, borderline personality disorder and especially patients that were really suicidal. And so there were very few treatments that were effective clinically for for these individuals that you could see long lasting changes in their presenting symptoms or suicidality um, and all these things that they were going to therapy for. And so this woman named Marsha Linehan developed the treatment and they did loads of clinical um, studies on it, but the treatment itself is broken down into a couple different things. You're doing individual therapy with a DBT therapist. You're doing family therapy with a, again, your same DBT therapist. You are attending a skills education group with um, other, for me, it was other teens my age. And then at the same time, your therapist is sitting on a board with other DBT clinicians. So all of this is really kind of like, a group mindset where people are checking themselves, whether you're checking them yourself in therapy, your parents are checking themselves in family therapy, the therapists are getting support, the teens are getting support in the skills group. So when you boil it down, when you think of DBT, you really think of the skills. That's the, that's the standout part of DBT, what separates it from something like talk therapy or psychotherapy or CBT. So what DBT is, it's giant binder book of skills, and it's broken down into modules, which are mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and then for adolescents, they have another module called walking the middle path. And within each of these modules, there are dozens of skills. So for mindfulness, there are kind of two main skills, which are the what skills and the how skills. And the what skills are what you're doing when you're practicing mindfulness, which is you're participating wholly in the experience, um, you're observing the experience without judgments, um, and you're describing the experience again without your judgments. And then how you're doing that is um, non-judgmentally, effectively, and one mindfully. So that's just an example of two skills within one module. 
Um, and all of these modules are made up of so, so many different skills. And I think the best way to explain it is that when you're really struggling with depression, anxiety, whatever it is, you learn some really maladaptive ways to cope and get that love and support and connection and be okay. And that's totally normal because you're having your environment tell you that this is effective for you. For me, when I was spending time in the hospital, my parents would be like, oh my gosh, are you okay? I would get validated that what I was feeling was actually problematic. And so that would be reinforced for me to get that love and care and connection and support, no matter how unhealthy that was. So what DBT does is it reteaches you how to live an effective life when you've forgotten a lot of these different things. So how to regulate your emotions in a healthy way, whether that's self-soothing or practicing self-care or making sure that all of your physical needs are kept in check. Um, how to interact effectively, whether that's advocating for um, your self-respect and objective you want to meet or improving the relationship. Um, and then how to deal with these crisis situations that many people struggling um, encounter. And so one of my favorite skills, which I think is really fun to share, is called the tip scale. And so when you're in a crisis situation, which it, the way they describe it is you have um, these things called suds, which are like your units of distress. Um, and so if you're like walking down the street, nothing's going on, maybe your suds are at like 10, maybe a 20, depending on the person. Um, if you're about to give a presentation, maybe you're at like a 30 or a 40 for your level of distress. When you're having a panic attack, you're up at like 80, 90, maybe 100. The world feels like it's ending. So when you're up on that level, this is when you would use the TIP scale. And so TIP is an acronym that stands for Temperature, Intense Exercise, Paced Breathing, and Paired Muscle Relaxation. Those are four different skills that you can implement when you're feeling that level of distress. And this is one of my favorite skills because it's so evidence-based that no one can be like, eh, I don't know, because it works. And so the temperature part of it is um, what you do is you take, um, optimally, you'd have a bowl of ice and you'd submerge your face in the bowl of ice for 20, 30 seconds, bring your face out, take a couple deep breaths. You can also kind of adapt this and use ice underneath your eyes, on the back of your neck, on your wrists. And so how, what this does is it stimulates your mammalian diving reflex. So as mammals, we obviously can't breathe underwater. So our body's way of keeping us alive is to slow down our heart rate and our breathing rate when we go underwater and when we experience that cold water. Because if we have too much carbon dioxide being produced because our heart is beating too fast, we'll suffocate and we'll die. So we kind of use this, this reflex to our advantage and that when you're feeling distress in a panic attack or a moment of anger or even extreme sadness, your heart rate's increased, your, um, your breathing is increased, you're probably really tense, your muscles are really clenched, um, and you're in your fight or flight mode. So what we're doing is we're using your body's um, reflexes to prevent you from being in that state of arousal for too long to a point where it physically harms you and you're submerging your face and your body is forced to bring down your heart rate and your breathing rate and kind of relax you and calm you down. So you're decreasing those physical symptoms of distress and in turn, you're able to kind of talk to yourself out of that, that level of distress and calm down. Whereas when you're in that fight or flight mode, it's almost impossible to think, okay, now I'm going to use my deep breathing breathing and using my distract skill. Like you just can't even think about that because you're so overwhelmed. So by bringing down those physical levels of distress, you can then go and cope effectively. And so that's temperature. Intense exercise, again, um, you are bringing down your physical levels of distress. And so what you do is you do sprints or squats or jumping jacks, something that really pushes your physical exertion to the max. And you're raising your heart rate higher than it already is when you're distressed. And because your body knows that it can't sustain that level 
um, of breathing and, and your heart rate for a long period of time. It's forced to bring it down and in turn, it brings down your physical level of distress from whatever emotions you were experiencing. And then the last two are paced breathing and paired muscle relaxation. And when we're distressed, we're probably breathing pretty heavily. We're kind of whatever it is that your, your breath is really rapid. And so what you're doing is you're forcing yourself to, to lower your breathing rate um, by doing um, like counted breathing. So maybe it's two seconds for an inhale, pause for a second, three seconds for an, for an exhale, and doing that for a couple of minutes to bring that, down that distress. And then paired muscle relaxation, the last part of the tip scale is what kind of addresses those clenched muscles, those um, those fists that are um, really tightly scrunched, those other parts of your distress. And so you are intentionally um, clenching your muscles further so that when you release them with your breath, so you inhale and you clench your muscles and you exhale and you release, you're also letting go of those clenched muscles from that distress and that anger and that anxiety and whatever it is. So all of these really target those physical um, presentations of distress to bring you out of that fight or flight mode, really overwhelmed headspace, and then from there, further cope. But that's one example of a DBT skill that gets taught. And this giant book of skills, like I mentioned, truly were what helped um, change my life and allowed me to live a life that I loved and enjoyed by having this amazing foundation of a toolbox that allowed me to navigate whatever challenges were thrown at me. I think I just learned more about mental health and like different skills <laughs> than I have in my entire life. <laughs> so are you still able to use all of these skills to help maintain and balance your mental health while maintaining this successful podcast and while being in school, being a student, dealing with the social life and just dealing with being a teenager in general? Yeah. So the amazing thing about DBT is that these skills really last you for life and that they can be used whether you're at an extreme point of distress or you're just living your day-to-day -day life because when you're living a healthy, balanced, effective life, you're implementing a lot of these things without realizing it. And so I still see a therapist every week and she's actually a DBT therapist. And so one of the things we check in on is if I'm using my skills and then if I have a problem to solve, I'm like, oh, I really want to ask my parents for this thing. We'll use a DBT skill to navigate it. Um, but there's a couple that I would say I use more so now than when I was really struggling. When I was really struggling, it was a huge emphasis on like the tip scales and getting out of these crisis moments. Whereas now there's kind of a handful that I still use to maintain my own mental health and make sure that I'm not overworking myself or getting stressed out um, in, in a kind of less acute setting. And so one of those is called the ABC scale, and that stands for accumulate positives, build mastery, and cope ahead. And really an emphasis on the first two letters, which is accumulating positives and building mastery. And so accumulating positives is when you're intentionally going through your day, week, month, whatever time period, and planning ways that you will create joy for yourself. So maybe in the morning, you plan to have your favorite cup of coffee, or you plan to get outside for 10 minutes during your break at lunch to get fresh air um, and feel better, or you plan to meet your friends to have just a really fun night and feel connected and loved um, and see and so when we're experiencing these lows, we all do, no matter what it is that you're feeling, you can no longer get into that headspace of everything sucks. This is terrible and I have nothing going for me because you've accumulated these positives. You're really decreasing the distance between your average daily life and these lows, whatever that is, whether it's depression or anxiety. Um, and then building mastery is another really fun one that, again, helps you regulate your emotions and that when we get better at skills, whether that's podcasting or school or a sport, a hobby, whatever it is, 
it really does increase our mental health because we feel pride. We feel pride in what we're doing. We feel, feel confident and um, you're able to see this change in yourself with, with the skill that you're mastering. And so that's another really fun one, which is just built in with the podcast that I get a lot of joy out of and really does contribute to my mental health. And then the other one worth, worth mentioning is the PLEASE skill. And I, it stands for physical illness. Um, Oh gosh, do I even remember this one? It's like one of those where they like capitalize the second letter in a word to make this acronym work, but it really isn't a good acronym. But basically what it stands for is making sure all of your um, physical needs are in check. So exercise, diet, um, eating, not necessarily being on a diet, but eating balanced and healthy so that your body is fueled. Um, maintaining your sleep, taking medications if you take them, um, going to the doctor regularly, um, all of these things that when we're depressed or struggling, we tend to forget about. So when you're maintaining those regularly, you're able to perform to the highest degree and not be tired or focused on what you haven't eaten because you're hangry, all of these things that allow you to really succeed in life if you're taking care of them. So those three are probably the, the three that I pull from the most often because they're just so necessary to live a life where you feel fulfilled and happy and balanced. Um, but most people do them without even realizing, which is so awesome. How are you able to balance this while being a high school student? Like, could you go into a little bit about your mental health advice for high school students? I know you made an episode on this previously, and I think it was an outstanding episode. You gave so much information. I think it was really valuable. So can you dive into that a little bit more? Of course, of course. So as far as being a high school student and balancing things, I know that the podcast is something that makes me really happy. And now I've kind of had to adjust and make, okay, this is work. I really enjoy it and I put a lot of effort and time into it. And so instead of at the beginning when it was a hobby where I was accumulating a positive, now it's more of like a building mastery work thing. So I kind of separate school and work um, and the podcast in like one section. And then I have free time where I'm able to calm down and self-care into another. And one of the the ways that I make sure that I'm not overworking and stressing myself out, which I feel like is one of the most chronic issues in high school students, is really making sure that I have enough time where I'm not doing things. I'm able to self-care. I'm able to spend time with my family. I'm able to see my friends, do these things that aren't like on my to-do list, got to check this off, or like there's something's going to go wrong. Um, so really, really prioritizing that time where you're kind of just doing nothing. Um, I also am really big on on planning, and that's I'm really type A in that sense, but making sure that I know um, what I have to get done for school and the podcast and work, and I'm a very big procrastinator. There's so many days where I'm like, well, it's going to have to get done tomorrow because it's just not enough hours, but just knowing what I have to get done and being able to prioritize, okay, like I got to get this schoolwork done, and then hopefully I'll get to edit this podcast episode, but it might just not happen, and having a lot of compassion for myself that it's, it's a lot to balance, and sometimes I won't get everything done, and that's okay, and that's, that's totally normal for high school students or people working to not get everything done and, and having that grace for yourself, um, but again, really, really um, honing in and prioritizing my physical health, whether that's sleep or eating or exercise um, and maintaining, like taking meds and seeing my therapist, because again, you're seeing a doctor. It's part of your, your medical um, needs, and so making sure that I'm taking time for that, and then from there, really prioritizing my time to make sure that I have these things that bring me a lot of joy, whether that's spending time with my family or self-care or the podcast and my work commitments. Um, but that is kind of succinctly um, how I balance stuff. 
I think that it's really important that you mention all these things and really putting emphasis on talking about like to-do lists and making it a point to say like, if I don't get it done today, it'll get done another day because that's something that like mm-hmm. I really have struggled with for a while. And especially when I was in school, like, you know, like when you get like the list of homework all written down in your plan, I'm like, oh my God, if I don't get all these things done, like I'm not gonna be able to go to sleep. I'm gonna have to stay up till three in the morning doing this. But in reality, I'm like, okay, if I miss like this, like reading assignment, is it really the end of the world? And like, as a student, yeah. I would just put myself through misery every day, like trying to complete mm-hmm. all these crazy tasks on the to-do list and stuff. And it was really challenging. Yeah, like for me, I let my mental health struggle so much that I couldn't even attend school. I took a whole semester off because I was struggling so much. So if you wait until your mental health gets that bad to try and do something, all these priorities that you had before, whether it was that reading assignment or those math questions, those are now completely out of the picture because you can't even think about getting those things done. So if tonight you have a couple of assignments, um, really looking at it kind of from your mental health perspective. And I'm not saying don't do your homework because you have to do your mental health. But the example I think I gave in the episode was if you have some math questions and a reading assignment, like a couple chapters of a book for English and some research for a lab tomorrow in your biology class, you have to do the math questions. Even if like you like typically copy them from the internet, that's still going to take time to copy them. Regardless, I'm not condoning cheating, but you have to do the math questions at some point. Um, the reading, for me, I tend to be able to still contribute to those conversations in an English class without spending hours highlighting every single quote from the book. So I will read like the first sentence and last sentence of all the paragraphs or the first paragraph and last paragraph of the chapter or read some summaries online so that I can still add value about the themes and different different parts of that chapter without spending three hours slaving over this assignment that's making me miserable. And then for the biology research, the example I gave was if you've done this lab a couple years ago and you can still contribute to the class without spending three hours prepping for this lab with all these videos of other people doing the lab that you're going to be doing anyways, like don't like don't do that to yourself. Um, And uh, you'll still be able to be a very successful student almost more so if you're able to kind of cultivate these passions and be able to navigate your mental health. Because again, like I think, well, homework is a very important part of school. What you're able to contribute in the classroom is huge. If you're not present enough to take notes or learn from the teacher or understand what's going on in the classroom, you're going to fail. So if you've spent six hours the night before when you should have been sleeping, slaving over homework, the next day, you're probably going to be dozing off in class. You're not going to be able to focus on what's going on. So really setting yourself up for success in the classroom by making sure your mental health is on track. Um, otherwise, like you're, you're failing on the homework and the in-class side of things. So like, let's just cut our losses here and, and see what works best. I love how that kind of goes into the mentality that you talked about of work smarter, not harder, because (laughs) I feel like we all kind of need to have that mentality. My parents hate it, but it's so good. I love it. (laughs) I wish that I had that mentality like when I was a student, because I would literally just work hard until I was burnt (laughs) out, until I couldn't do anything anymore. I would stay up all night and like the next day I would literally just be like a pile of mush and then I was going so hard the night before that I couldn't give my full 100% effort the next day whether it was in school whether it was like with my social life whether it was like after school sports and activities like it's a lot and I really think that it's important to talk about work smarter not harder you said like you got to pick and choose sometimes totally and if you're able to maintain 
your academic performance, whatever that is for you, the standard you've set for yourself by working smarter, not harder, and still really showing up as, a as an amazing student in the classroom. You have more of your mental health to expand into passions and extracurriculars and other things that you really love. And those other things are really what's going to differentiate you as an applicant. For me, if I um, spent the amount of time I spent on the podcast at school, um, there may be some like minor differences in my grades and my performance, but I wouldn't have this thing that really did differentiate me when I was applying to colleges or for work or any of these things. And so having these passions where you're able to um, put that grit and that time and, and that work that you also can show grit and passion and work in school, but again, differentiating yourself for things that you love doing and that fill you up um, and, and bring you a lot of joy. Can you talk a little bit about more since we're on the topic of college applications? I know that's an incredibly stressful time because there's so much that goes into it. There's a lot of stress thinking, am I going to get into this school? Am I going to get into that? And thinking about your future and dealing with that. So how are you able mm -hmm. to prioritize and balance your mental health while dealing with college prep? Totally. So the short answer is that I didn't really have a great plan going into it. I wasn't like, this is how I'm going to prioritize my mental health during this process. It was kind of like I was just navigating it day by day. Um, I think the biggest way that you can maintain your mental health throughout the college application is really changing how you are looking at your peers and your community as you go through this process. Because in a sense, it's really toxic. Your competition are your classmates and your friends, which is a terrible thing to think about. Like that these people that you've grown up with and, and are in the same classes with, like you're competing against them for what feels like your entire future. Um, and so if you're able to look at it instead through a lens of, okay, I've done everything I can up to this point. And in a, in, in a lot of ways, this is a lottery. It's not a reflection of me. It's not a reflection of them. And no matter where I end up, I will be happy and fulfilled. And I can always transfer. Like you have these options. Um, and then, um, so that's one, one part is your perspective on how you view your relationships around you and kind of my, I think it was helpful to move away from the gatekeeping of like, oh, I can't tell you where I applied. I'm not going to tell you what my score was or what I talked about. And instead, just being like, I like, I was really open with my friends and I like did really bad in the SAT at first. I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. Like, this is not going well for me. Um, and that I was having trouble getting things down on paper when I was writing my essay. It was really hard for me to articulate um, my high school experience. And I had a lot of questions about how I could even talk about my mental health. So being open because other people are struggling with the same things. Um, and then as far as like mental health, when you're checking all these boxes with testing and writing your applications and getting your recommendations, again, I think really leaning into your relationships with your peers, you'll get so much validation from them when you're talking about this process because they're going through the exact same thing. They're also applying to colleges and stressed out about who they're going to ask to recommend and study for the SAT um, and writing all these applications. You can really get a lot of validation from that standpoint. And then just like with... Um, with homework and schoolwork, when it's 11 p.m. at night and you're planning to do a whole like SAT practice test, you're like, is this really the best thing here? Because while maybe in the long run you feel like, okay, but this could help my SAT, we go back to if you are failing out of school because you can't pay attention in your classes because you've been up all night, like, how is that going to impact your college application if you have bad grades? So really just creating that balance um, and, and having a lot of compassion for yourself through that process and leaning on others for validation because everyone's going through the same thing. 
Yeah, I think that's really important to remember because I feel like it's pretty easy to forget that and really just focus on the fact that it's kind of like a competition rather than thinking like they're mm-hmm. they're just as scared as you. They're going through the same things. They're probably just as stressed, all the same feelings. So it's really important to be open and to talk about these things. Exactly. So do you have any final thoughts or anything else that you would like to share with us today? Yeah, I think that there's two things that I think are really important to know. One is that when you're struggling with your mental health, whether that's um, you're just feeling really overwhelmed, you're feeling disconnected, you're feeling like something isn't right and you wish it was different, or maybe you're like, oh my God, I'm really depressed and I don't know what to do. The hardest thing is going to be for that first time going to someone and being like, hey, I'm not okay and I need help and I need support and this is really scary. That for me was the hardest thing was that for that first time admitting that I wasn't okay and I needed help. And from there, it's downhill. And I truly believe that. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a straight path. It's, you're going to have really bad days and it's going to be really awful, but you have people in your corner. You have a support system. You have more resources to, to levy with from all of these people who now are rooting for you and want you to be happy and healthy and living a life that you love. Um, and the other, um, the other piece of advice is that regardless of what your mental health is like now, again, we all have mental health, just like we all have physical health, we all have to take care of our minds as well. And so if you can create these habits that help you live a, a life that you love and that, that keeps you balanced, um, that'll really serve you in the long run before things get bad and overwhelming and all that kind of stuff. So those would be my two pieces of advice. One is that it's going to be really difficult. And if you can reach out to someone when you're struggling, I highly recommend it. Second thing, being that if you can create habits that support your mental health now, when you have moments where you're challenged and you're struggling, you're so much better equipped to to, um, to handle those. And then finally, just that you're not alone. Just like I talked about in this episode with my own struggles with depression and anxiety, there are loads of people out there that have been exactly where you are. And even though it feels so isolating and and like you're alone in your, your struggle, I promise you you're not. And people want to help you and they've been there and it is possible for things to change. Wow. I think that that is an amazing way to end it. I think that you just gave such great advice and this was such an educational and informative episode. And I think it's so important and I'm so glad and I'm honored that I got to have this conversation with you today because you you. are doing amazing, amazing things. And I can't wait to see all the stuff that you continue to do. So again, thank you so much for being a guest and being open and honest and sharing all these things with us today. I think that this was truly amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we got to sit down. Me too. Everyone, make sure to follow Sadie. I'm going to add all the links in the description and make sure you subscribe, give her a review, follow everything in her podcast. She persisted. Thank you so much, Sadie.